This is the third in a series of talks by Joel titled The Practice of Inquiry 3, Causes and Correlations, recorded October 15, 2006, at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. To the student who left me this little note, excellent question. Be patient. We're getting there. This is all warm-up, by the way, what we're doing today. So tomorrow we start really the self-inquiry. This is general inquiry about the nature of impermanence and emptiness and things like that. So we haven't even really started with the main practice of the retreat yet. We'll get there. Everybody brought their cup? You didn't bring a cup? Well, uh, one of you better count how many cups we need and run down and get the cups. Thank you, Mary. So, while Miriam's going down to do that, uh, did anybody find an object of any sort this afternoon? I was going to bring a rock. I felt like that was the most permanent thing. But that word real kept coming up for me. Well, what the Buddhists claim is if this were truly self-existent, independently existent, if it was real in that sense, then it couldn't change. But you could you go back to like all the electrons and atoms and everything, and that they continue even though the cup may fall apart? Well, first of all, let me see an electron. Nobody's ever seen an electron. They're totally imaginary. No one has ever seen an electron. People have seen things and assumed that they are the effect of an electron doing something. But that's a supposing that there must be an electron in order to explain why this effect appears. So if you want to go look for an electron, that's, you know, fits into this investigation perfectly because it's totally imaginary. And then in terms of it continuously existing, you know, this is the whole mystery of quantum mechanics. Apparently things don't continuously exist. Or let me put it this way, there is no way to explain the world behind quantum mechanics as things individually continually exist, at least in a singular. There may be infinite cups continuing to exist, but again, that's totally imaginary. No one's seen infinite cups. So when we get down to that level of physics, we're dealing in a completely imaginary world. We're dealing in exactly what I'm and the mystics are claiming we do at the macroscopic level. We're going to get more into this in just a moment, okay? Now everybody's got a cup. Okay. Yes? I had to go to my car and get some cleaner to clean my glasses, and I thought, my mind goes, okay, I know there's this bottle in that car, and it starts forming a list of sort of indirect evidence that I will find this bottle there. But of course, but then I realized, oh, this is a thought that arises. And 
even saw that that thought, it didn't matter if there was no right or wrongness about it, it was just a thought. And it didn't mean anything, actually. And it's like, oh. And it was perfect, and it was, yeah, it was just, it was just a thought I had about it. And it was, had nothing to do with this so-called object. And, yeah, it's just like, I convinced myself. So, this is what direct insight means. It's when we start to get a specific insight in a specific situation about a specific thought, or a specific phenomenon, or a specific object, not just a general idea. You see what I mean? Because now it's relating directly to your experience. And I wouldn't say that it, the thought doesn't have any meaning. It has meaning. It just isn't what it pretends to be. It's something else, which we're going to check out right here. Yeah. Um, if the sky was clear, <coughs> you went outside and I pointed to one of those things up there and say that's uh, independent existence. Okay. So this is a thought you're having now, right? Well, this is a thought experiment that you have to go along with this. <laughs> okay. So I go up there and I point and I say, that's independently existing, right? Then I close my eyes. What happens to it? Um, <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. Okay. But, okay, this is a nice segue into this because for most people of all the various phenomena, the ones that are hardest to grok that they are impermanent are the visual phenomena. That's the ones that seem the most solid to us. So I just want to do a little, before we move into tonight's uh, teaching, a little experiment. For instance, you can hear this, right? Okay, so I'm going to give these letters, A, B, C, D, so we can talk about it, right? So here comes A. Okay? So here comes B. So is that the same sound, A and B? Is that the same, or are those two different sounds? Does anybody think they're the same sound? I think they're similar. Similar but different. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes people talk about sounds like that as though they were the same, like musicians. So give me a C. Ding, 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 ding. I know what's a C. So that's, oh, okay, we're playing the note C. The note C is the same. Every time you play it, if you play it properly, it's the same, right? But that's a convenience. Again, we know that actually when the guitar plays C and the trumpet plays C, those are two different sounds, right? Now, okay, uh, everybody look at this flashlight. Now close your eyes. That was A. Now open your eyes. This is B. Now close your eyes. Now open your eyes. This is C. Are A, B, and C identical? Are they different phenomena or the same phenomena? Similar. What? Similar. That's right, similar, just the way 
these tapping sounds are similar, but they're actually different, right? As phenomena. The mind says there must be some object under there causing it, and even in terms of modern science, what you're seeing is caused by one set of photons bouncing off this supposed object and hitting your eye. When you close your eye and you open your eyes again, you're seeing another set of photons, totally different set of photons. You see what I mean? So even in terms of modern science, the phenomena is different each time. What modern science, no, I shouldn't say modern science, what classical science assumed was that there was an object behind it that the photons were bouncing off of. Assumed. Thought. It's a thought in the mind. No classical physicist ever found an object, but it was assumed. Just like electrons. No difference. So, this is something that's hard to get used to, especially in the visual field. Because when you close your eyes, open your eyes, close your eyes, open your eyes, it seems like, well, you're just seeing the same thing, but you're not seeing the same thing, strictly speaking. You're seeing different phenomena. And if you sat in this room at dawn or in the evening, and you put the flashlight out in the middle of the room as the sun was coming up or going down, and you opened your eyes and you took a visual snapshot, you closed your eyes, you waited 10 minutes, you opened your eyes, took another snapshot, closed your eyes, waited another 10 minutes, opened your eyes, took another snapshot. They would be very different phenomena. The color would be different, the size would be different. There's a very famous set of paintings by one of the Impressionists of the same cathedral at different times of day. So there are like six pictures. You know, the, the shape is similar, but the color is completely different in all the pictures. There's six different pictures. So one of the things when we do these exercises is we have to really rely on our own experience and not have our experience confused by our thought. That's why we started with this very primitive exercise of trying to separate out the label cup from the phenomenon. But thoughts keep superimposing themselves on our experience, and we're trying to separate out what we think and what is actually happening. So it's through this process of inquiry and analysis and breaking down our experience and actually going to find some object, we keep coming back to a thought. But I think it's there. It may not, <coughs> in normal circumstances, be a conscious thought. We're so habituated to think this way, we don't have to generate a conscious thought. I know I left my bottle in the car, so I just go down and I get the bottle. I don't think that there must be some object called bottle, and I'm sure I'm going to find it. And I open the car, and lo and behold, there are a bunch of phenomena that I've always associated with some underlying object called bottle. I don't bother going through all that. But now, let's go on, because we're going to see that just the way you do it isn't the way it's always been done, or always will be done, or it's the only possible way to do it which gives us a big clue that it's imaginary. The main reason that objects seem to inherently exist is because the phenomena we associate with them seem to be correlated in precise and predictable ways. 
So, let's go back to the cup. You look at it, pick it up. Now, let's do that It's more slowly. You don't have to put it all the way back down, but just put it out of sight for a moment. So, the first thing is there's a sensation. Right? You bring it up in front of your face, a visual phenomena arises, right? Now I'm switching hands, so there's another sensation. Then I tap. Almost simultaneously, there's sensation and sound going together, right? So much so that I'm just sure every time I hit this, the sound's going to follow, right? So these are all different phenomena. The sensation's a different phenomena from the sight, from the sensation in the fingernail, from the sound phenomena. And in fact, what we're not even dealing with is different phenomena here. We're dealing with different subsets of phenomena. Because if I blink, then I've got several phenomena going. All the phenomena I'm calling sensation, all the phenomena I'm calling sound, the multiple taps. So I've got subsets. It's very complicated, this one little thing of picking this up. So all these phenomena seem to be correlated. And they seem to be correlated so precisely and so predictably that the correlations seem to be objective themselves. But again, when the correlations seem to be so repetitive, then we reify the correlations as what we call in this culture a physical cause, as in cause and effect. So all these phenomena seem to be related in a causal way, and then it's quite natural to think, well, there must be some object which is causing all this. So that when I reach over here and pick this up, sensation arises. And when I look, visual phenomena arise. And when I tap, sound phenomena arise. So the underlying cause of all that, according to the way we think, is the object. And so the causes seem to be objective. Is everybody following what I'm saying here? So, a good example of this, uh, thunder and lightning, which we're all familiar with. First, boom. Now, these are two very different phenomena, a sight phenomena and a sound phenomena, and they are separated by time, but I think you all learned as a kid to count the seconds, and that's how far away the lightning is, right? the distance between the lightning and the thunder. And the explanation of why it's so far apart is that the light travels faster than the sound. So it gets to you first, right? So we've got this whole web of causality worked out to explain the relationship between two different phenomena. But guess what? No one has ever seen lightning apart from the visual phenomena and no one has ever heard thunder apart from the sound phenomena. 
Now, if you were standing under it, you might get a sensation phenomena <laughs> through your body, which would be different. So this is the mind constructing, and this particular case, quite clearly, quite consciously. And, and, and you can even tell how you learned it and when you learned it. I don't know if you remember the exact time, but I, I remember my parents telling me that as a kid. It was kind of fascinating. Now, count the seconds. I'd sit there and I'd count. Oh, 10, 11, well, that's far away. But, bam! Ooh, that's close. Right? So, is it true that the correlations are physical causes out there, which we are just discovering, or are the correlations themselves imaginary, invented in our minds, and projected onto our experience? That's our question here, okay? And I've been trying to think up some experiment which we could do right here to demonstrate discrepancies that might raise doubt about this, and unfortunately, I couldn't. I'm going to give you thought experiments and examples, but I can't reproduce them right here. I wish that Todd was on our retreat. Todd's a magician, in case some of you didn't know. Because magic tricks work by violating your expectation of what the correlations are going to be. So just like you're sure that that bottle is in your car, and you go down to get the bottle, and every time you go down there, the bottle's there. So I am sure that if I saw a woman in half in a box, that she's going to be in two pieces. So when she jumps up in one piece, it violates my correlations that I have drawn. See, that aren't out there. I drew those correlations. I was sure that that woman was going to be cut in half. But she's not. If we go back historically... Uh, we can see examples of how whole cultures and civilizations have invented different correlations than we have and projected them onto their experience. For instance, up until, what, two, three hundred years ago, virtually everybody, as far as we know since the dawn of time, took for granted that the earth was motionless. It's just obvious, isn't it? I mean, you're sitting, it's not moving. If you jump in a river, then you're moving, and you scramble up on the bank, and now you're still. If you jump on a horse, you're moving, you jump off, and now you're still. I mean, it's just, what could be more self-evident than that the earth is still? And based on that, then, we start correlating what we see the visual phenomena in the sky. We go out there and look up, see? And, well, you know, the sun obviously moves across the sky. Now, very few people, I think, actually sat and watched the whole thing move, but, you know, in the morning, you look up there, there it is. Yeah, you go do some farm work, you look up, it's up here. You, you look up here at noon, it's up here. You look in the afternoon, it's here, here, here. So you've got these, again, different visual phenomena, snapshots, and you're connecting the dots with a causal effect. The cause of this is that the sun is moving around the earth. That's why you're seeing 
the sun appear in different places in the sky, or different visual phenomena, if we really want to be precise about it. Is everybody following this? And the moon, and your stars too, which you, it seems so obvious to everybody what's going on. The stars are fascinating because in relation to each other, the stars don't move. So you've got uncountable stars all moving together. Well, you know, they must be implanted on something. I mean, crystalline spheres. Crystalline spheres. You don't see the sphere because it's clear, it's crystal. But how else do you explain them all moving together like that? Could they all be going exactly the same speed like that? No. So that's exactly the way the ancients, you know, viewed this. Now, they're looking at, quote, the same phenomena you are. Actually, they're looking at totally different phenomena because all that phenomena is impermanent and gone. But uh, for the purposes of our Gedanken experiment, you can put yourself in their place. They correlated it all completely differently than we correlate it today. It's fascinating sometimes if you get a chance to go out in the desert or some open space at dawn and watch the horizon before the sun comes up. Take that as your meditation object. You know, sit there for half an hour. And... Normally, what the mind, even today, even with all our scientific knowledge, what the mind sees is the sun rising over the horizon. That's the way the mind correlates it. Which shows you it's coming from the mind. It isn't out there as an objective fact, is it? But after a while, if you recognize that this is just imaginary, you can actually get a sense of seeing how the horizon is falling away from the sun. You don't get it associated with a sensation, and that's one of the reasons it's hard to do. Because if we were falling, you'd feel it, oh, you know, like going over a roller coaster. But visually, you can do that. You can shift your own perception based on that. So here's just one example of how causal things that we take for granted weren't always taken for granted. Different people construed them in a different way. We like to think, well, those people were all wrong, see? They imagined it all wrong. We've discovered the true correlation. But it's, in terms of science and space and all that, it's even more complicated today because according to Einstein's theory, all motion is relative. There's no such thing as absolute motion. It's only motion in relation to a, a reference frame which we choose. So you can do a little Gedanken experiment with this to see how this works. You can just imagine yourself out in space in a space capsule with one portal looking out and your computers crash so you don't know where you are, you don't know how fast you're going or if you're going at any speed at all, you don't know what's happening. And all you have is this one portal and there's nothing else in the sky right there where you're facing in space. And then here comes this rock and it moves across your portal like that. Well, are you moving past the stationary rock, or is the rock moving past you in a stationary spaceship, or are both moving past each other? How would you possibly determine that? You can't. 
That's a simple example. But do you realize that you go into a pool hall and all the balls are set up and you put a ball down there and you shoot it with a pool cue and it travels across the table. You know what? You think that the table's stationary and all the balls are stationary and the room is stationary, everything's stationary and your ball is traveling across the table. You've chosen that as a reference frame. It could be that the table and all the balls in the room are all moving towards this ball and if it's rolling on top of that, spinning around it. It's just as real. I, really, you laugh, but it is just as real. There is no way in an ultimate sense to tell the difference. So we choose. We choose. And we're projecting it out there. Let me tell you a story that shows the mind in action, constructing a chain of cause and effect to connect different phenomena. Some of you have heard this before. I read this in a, an anthropology book about the Ojibwa Indians in the Midwest. And two Ojibwa hunters were out trapping beaver. And they went out, and they're out for a few days, and they build a little lean-to for themselves with a little fire pit and a smoke hole. And they set their traps, and then they come back, and they have some dinner, and they sleep. And they go out the next day, and they check their traps, and there's no beaver in there. So they reset them, they come back, they go out the next day, and there's still no beaver. So they come back, and they're talking about this at night, because this is very unusual. At this time of year, with these traps, they've always gotten lots of beaver. And then they notice this weasel looking at them through the smoke hole, kind of staring at them with a you know weird look. And one of the hunters picks up a stick from the fire, and he throws it, and he gashes the weasel's face. He hits it, and the weasel runs off. And he turns to his partner and he says, you know what? He says, I'll bet that was a sorcerer. Because in Ojibwa cultures, sorcerers can shapeshift. And uh, I'll bet he's been cursing our luck hunting. And I drove him off and you'll see, I'll bet tomorrow we go out there, the traps are full. Sure enough, the morning they go out, the traps are full. Aha, confirmation of the causal theory. But that's not the end of it. They stay out there a few more nights, they get lots of beaver, they come back to the main village, and they're telling their friends about their little adventure with the sorcerer and the weasel and how they had bad luck, but they changed it and all that. And the friends are amazed. And they say, you know that weird guy that lives at the edge of the village? said, you know, two days ago, he showed up with a big gash on his face. Well, that clinches it, doesn't it? Huh? I mean, there's the explanation of everything that happened. It all fits together in a nice little causal chain, which they think is objective. Uh, just as objective as you think going down to the parking lot and you're going to find your, your bottle there. We create it. We create it. And we project it out onto the world. And it's very useful. And it works much of the time. We only, in fact, notice it when it don't work. And then we have what uh, psychologists call cognitive dissonance, you know. <laughs> Something's weird. And I'm going to tell you now a personal story about this, a, a rather bizarre one, but a fun one. When I was living in Lone Pine, I was driving down to Los Angeles in the old gray mare with my dog. And it's all desert country, but when you get to this little town, there's a little farming going on, irrigation, 
and there's little cattle being run, just very small little plots. And the road swings through the town, and the speed limits in these desert towns, you know, they go down to 15 miles an hour, and you better slow down, too, because, you know, they pave the roads by your speeding tickets. So you slow way down, then you're coming out. And it was hot in the desert, and the windows are down, and Zaro is looking out the window, my dog. And he loved to bark at any animals he'd see, you know, sheep running around, cows and stuff. So we're coming around, there's a herd of cows, and there's one cow right up by the fence, right close to the road where we're coming. So Zaro's barking, having lots of fun. And I look over there, and then the cow turns and looks at us and opens its mouth and goes, but then the moo didn't stop. It went on. It went, and Zarl <laughs> go for the floor. I didn't know what was going on. And a second later, this jet fighter goes racing by. And there's an Air Force base down the end of the valley. And they fly up and down the valley, see? Well, you know, this, the synchronization was just as this cow was opening his mouth, <laughs> the sound came and we all correlated it. And for a moment, we were just thrown for a loop. So there's an example, though, of how, you know, it's not an objective correlation. It's not causal. It appeared causal. That cow opened its mouth, and just as it opened its mouth, this moo comes out. So the mind says, oh, you know, it doesn't say it. I mean, it does, it's not even a conscious thing. It's unconscious. I mean, it happens at a subliminal level. But when that happens, you realize you did it. It wasn't in it. It wasn't in the phenomenon. Do you see what I mean? Has anybody had anything happen to you like that? A correlation that turned out uh, not to meet your expectations? Sure. What? Well, yeah, it sounds kind of dumb, though. Yes, but that's okay. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's the, the right thing, but um, I was helping this person um, put these rocks down in the gate. We had to open the gate, we put the rocks up a little higher, and the lock was stuck, and he was messing, messing, messing with it. And um, he tells me, well, you try it, and use your incantation. And so I go, and I'm twisting, twisting, it won't work. And he said, well, did you try your incantation? I said, no. And then I just mentally did this little chant that I have, and boom, the thing, just like, is that the same thing? Yes, exactly right. <laughs> Now there's, now, there's an unconventional, in our culture, causal and relation effect, but it worked, didn't it? See, it, this business of working doesn't prove that it objectively exists. It just means we draw, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And if it works a lot of the time, we reify it. We take it to be real, we take it to be objective, we take it to be built in, to the reality on the other side of that boundary of I and other. But it's coming from here. This comes from the fact that originally we reified distinctions that separated things. But once we separate things, then we have to explain how they all work together. So first we break everything up with boundaries, and then we superimpose upon them connections. Does 
The reason everything works together is because it is only one thing. It's not a bunch of billiard balls flying around the table. There's only one thing here working, if you like. But once you break it all up, then you have to put it all back together. And we are very concerned to put it back together. We get very upset when it doesn't fit back together. Because the danger is it's all going to fall apart. And this is a well-known phenomena, again, in uh, anthropology. Uh, I read about a village in Indonesia. And this one little farmer had unusually large mushroom growing in his garden. And all the neighbors came from villages around to see this mushroom, and they all gave their explanations of why this monstrous mushroom should have grown this size, because it defied all normal uh, things. And it was all explanations in terms of their paradigm, their worldview. It wasn't our explanations, but, you know, that somebody broke a taboo or something like that. And the point he was trying to make is that whenever an anomaly pops up, something that doesn't fit, we just have this uh, obsession to make it fit, to explain it somehow. If, for instance, let's say tonight, we're leaving here and we see a long cigar-shaped blue object going across the sky. It's an unidentified flying object. But we don't uh, let it rest at that. Somebody's going to say, you think that's a flying saucer? You think finally the aliens have realized we're destroying the planet and they're coming to save us? And somebody else says, no, that can't be the explanation. It must be a weather balloon. And somebody says, no, no, the Air Force is sending up missiles and it's gone haywire. You're, everybody's going to you know, come up with their explanation. And then the next day, you'll read in the paper that, uh, yes, the sheriff's office got a lot of calls. Truckers saw this, and respectable people saw this, and uh, the weather service said one of their balloons went haywire. And then it all calms down. Why? Because now it's explained. See? It's all connected. So, uh, there's one more thing to say about this. In philosophy, in Western philosophy, in philosophical terms, this is called the problem of induction. You were talking about earlier today, you know, you deduce these things and so forth. Actually, in the beginning of the 19th century, people had known about deduction for ages. Uh, Euclid's geometry is a deductive system. You start with some self-evident axioms, supposedly self-evident axioms, because they turn out to be not so self-evident. And then you can deduce logically uh, various relationships and equalities and things like that from it. So then when science came along and when people started investigating empirically, uh, they started getting very interested in physical cause and effect. And the question arose, well, how do we really know for sure that there are these cause and effect relationships? And the example was, let's say event A occurs, uh, like lightning, and then every time event A occurs, event B occurs, thunder. I know sometimes you don't hear it, but just let's say for the sake of argument. Every time you hear it. So if you see that once, there's lightning, then there's thunder. Well, maybe there's a relationship, maybe not. Could be just coincidence, like the jet and the cow. 
But then you see it again. Lightning, thunder, lightning, thunder, lightning, thunder, lightning, thunder. After a while, you begin to induce that there's a relationship here, a causal relationship. Every time A occurs, event B is going to occur. So then the question is, though, how many times before you've actually established a causal relationship? Five times? Ten times? A thousand times? How would you know that? This is the basis for superstition. This is the basis for science as well. So, yes, there's a close connection. So, this became a big philosophical problem uh, in the early part of the 19th century. People don't usually talk so much about induction anymore. And uh, people have come up with various kinds of explanations, but nobody really answered the question. This question was investigated by David Hume, at least the first modern Western uh, philosopher that I know of who investigated it. And if you want to follow up, I highly recommend him. He uh, was writing at the end of the 18th century, uh, writing in English. He wasn't a professional philosopher. It's some of the most readable philosophy that you'll ever get. It's so refreshing. No fancy technical terms or anything. And he bases it all on an investigation and inquiry, just like we're doing into his own experience. It's written a little bit more leisurely style than we're used to. You know, it's the kind of book that you, uh, on a cold winter night, you light a fire, you put your feet up, you get a glass of port, and you settle in for a few good hours reading. But other than that, it's perfectly accessible. And he goes through this whole question of causality. And what does it mean when we say there's a physical cause? One thing bangs into another, and there are these correlations. But we never find anything physical that actually we can point to as cause, just like we never find any object. He even goes through object and identity and what is that, and he just starts tearing apart all the stuff. He really rediscovered all of the Buddhist analysis of reality. He even got to the point where it so disturbed him, because he took it seriously, that he was in a state of what I would call kenosis, and instead though of hanging out there and getting enlightened, he ran off and played backgammon with his friends because he couldn't stand it. That's why we have a precept not to overindulge in escapist entertainment. So that's exactly what happened to him. Anyway, if you want to follow up on all that, go ahead, because uh, really I'm just touching on it here tonight. We're going to be moving on, but I just want to lay some of the foundations for your doubt. I want to get you doubting things. That's my whole purpose here. Not convince you of anything, but get you doubting enough that you'll go out and look for yourself. So, let's uh, see if we can begin to catch our own minds creating these correlations. We're going to try one round of guided meditation here making a, an inquiry in the meditation. And then you start to watch for this throughout the retreat. And start to watch for the little correlations that don't work out. Because that's really the clue that they are imaginary, that they were cooked up in your mind. So look for that. Okay, so um, let's get in our meditative position here. And Put the cup out uh, in front of you where it's reachable or put it in your lap if it's too far to put it in front of you. 
So we're going to go over the same ground we went before when we were looking for the object cup. We're examining all this phenomena that arise and pass in consciousness, the impermanent phenomena. We're looking for some object. Now this is a little bit more subtle, but essentially the same thing. We're looking for A, the correlation other than the fact that they are just arising in proximity of each other, but an actual correlation, some objective something that ties them together. And if we don't find that, we're trying to notice our own mind doing it. Okay? Here we go. So let's start with concentrating on our meditation object in order to stabilize attention. Now look at your cup and notice that what you're experiencing is a phenomena appearing in the visual field of consciousness. Now tap your cup. And notice what you're experiencing are phenomena appearing in the sound field of consciousness. And the sensation field of consciousness. Now 
Let's try it one more time. And before we do it, notice that the sensation phenomena is different from the sound phenomena, which is different from the visual phenomena, even though they're all occurring more or less together. So let's try that. Now, tap again, but as you're tapping this time, generate the thought in your mind that my tapping the cup is causing sounds to appear in the sound field. Okay, let's try that. Now, without tapping, let's generate that thought again so it's clear. It was, it was my tapping of the cup that caused the sound phenomena to arise. And notice that that is a thought phenomena appearing in the thought field of consciousness. And as such, it is imaginary. Let's think it again in your own words. Just think about it a little bit. How tapping the cup causes sound to appear. If you want to go tap the cup again to check it out, go ahead. But think about it consciously as you're doing it. Okay, again, notice that that is a thought phenomena appearing in the thought field of consciousness. So, you have actually located a correlation between the sensation in your finger and the sound, the auditory sound, but that correlation is a thought. It's imaginary. That's where that correlation exists. Now allow all these thoughts about cups and tapping and causal correlations and everything just to self-liberate. Just relax for a few minutes in spacious awareness, allowing whatever phenomena arise to arise, pass away without any grasping, without any pushing away, without getting distracted by any chains of thought.
allowing it all to naturally do its thing. You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.